You're listening to the Pop Tart Podcast. Girl down. You already know. He just looked at me like, what sort of shit show is this? Men that I knew whispering in my ear and like internalized patriarchy, right? Well, yours is you're a woman and you're younger and you're feminist, so it's different. Like learning that there was basically a space for and, and, a, and a tradition of radical feminism in punk rock that I didn't know about at all. Hello. 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 And welcome to Pop-Tarts. <laughs> I'm Emily Rems. I'm Callie Watts. We're both editors of Bust Magazine in New York City. We love talking to each other about pop culture. We love talking to you about pop culture. And I'm so excited because my guest today is someone I truly admire as one of the most insightful and relevant music writers working today. Jessica Hopper is a longtime contributor to the Chicago Reader. She's been a columnist for The Village Voice, Chicago Tribune, and Punk Planet, the music consultant for This American Life, the editorial director for MTV News, and a senior editor at Pitchfork and Rookie. My beloved Rookie. Sigh. I love Rookie. <laughs> She's the editor of the American Music Series at the University of Texas Press, and for over 20 years, she has consistently been covering women in music who I care deeply about through a feminist lens, from Liz Fair to MIA to Janelle Monet to Hole to Bjork, just to name a few. Her knowledge is deep. Her opinions are surprising and her writing style is fearless, which is why so many music fans like me return to her work again and again. The extensively updated and expanded new edition of her career-spanning book, The First Collection of Criticism by a Living Female Rock Critic, comes out July 6th, and I cannot wait to talk to her all about it. Welcome, Jessica Hopper, to our show. Yay, you're here. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. I would like to start, if you don't mind, by just talking a little bit about how you and I met. It was, I think, and you can correct me, I think it was around 2009 or 2010. I was having trouble figuring out the exact year. And you and I, I were think, both... I think it was 2008, 2009, because in 2010, wow. I would have been pregnant. Okay, you were definitely not pregnant. So it was, <laughs> I think it was 2009. And you and I were part of a small group of journalists who were invited on a 10-day press junket through Israel that was completely focused on arts and culture. And it was completely weird in so many ways. Yes. And cool, but also weird. We spent hours every day in a van together riding through the desert. And <laughs> <laughs> very quickly, I identified you as the coolest person on that van. I was like, yep, that's the coolest person on the van. And vice versa. And <laughs> Everything you mentioned that you liked sounded so cool or interesting, or I already knew that it was cool and interesting, especially when you were telling me about Hit It or Quit It, which you had started as a teenager as a DIY feminist zine and then turned into a real magazine, just like how busts got started. You had all this audio equipment with you from WBEZ in Chicago. You were doing these like guerrilla interviews on the fly. And I remember just feeling very fortunate to have met you. And I, I kept avidly reading your writing from that moment on. 
I'm so curious if you remember anything in particular from that trip, because it remains very memorable to me over a decade later. Um, the weirdest interview of my life probably happened during that trip. I was um, doing a piece about Israeli um, comics and graphic novels. Um, that's how I was sort of using that trip. Um, and I was interviewing Edgar Koret, who's the famous uh, Israeli author. And um, the day that we were doing that, as part of the junket, we had been brought to the beach somewhere to like meet somebody who made like weird kites. It was really strange. <laughs> I don't think anybody was like, there was all these things that we saw on the trip that were like, definitely like basically, uh, essentially product placement, like people who were like, here, do a story on this. And we're like, none of us write about fucking kites. Okay. Like, and it's true. like, and I just kept saying, you know, I have an interview after this. I have an interview after this. Um, and it went really late. Mm. And so I had to basically be rushed to my interview and directly from the beach. And so I showed up literally just wearing a bikini <laughs> and with, again, with like a full uh, audio equipment kit, get there and I'm super late. I'm in a bikini. I'm like just totally sandy in his house and <laughs> we get there and go to turn on the audio equipment and I have, I'm out of batteries <gasps> and I have no, and I, I, because we were at the beach, I didn't have my like purse with me. And so we had to go to like the Seven Eleven and get these giant, like, like eight, you know, double D batteries or something, something huge. And it was $50 worth of batteries and Edgar had to pay for them. And oh. then we had to go back to, I mean, it was just like, he just looked at me like, what sort of shit show is this? Oh and he was God. only really doing it because we had both worked for this American life. And it was just, I just, I still feel the weird shame of it a decade later. Journalism, people. That this is, is journalism. Crazy. Yes. My butthole is clenching just hearing you describe it. <laughs> yeah, that is a lot. Yeah. Oh, man, that was weird. Yeah. I, I just briefly touched on your teenage zine, Hit It or Quit It, but I would love it if you could give our listeners just a general overview of your origin story, where you were born and where you grew up and how you found your way into the world of rock music writing from such a young age. Cause you were, you know, a rock writing entrepreneur before you even graduated high school. <laughs> <laughs> entrepreneur would really be upselling it. Um, I, I, um, mostly grew up in Minnesota and Minneapolis and, um, had, had gotten into punk rock early in about ninth grade, you know, before then I was definitely like a weird kid and, um, and was very politically active. You know, I spent my summers volunteering at like, you know, uh, the abortion rights action league and now and different, um, organizations and, you know, 
was out <laughs> collecting uh, signatures for like the GE boycott in the you know uh, late eighties, early nineties, wearing like a hazmat suit downtown during the day instead of going to like summer camp when I was Work. you know <laughs> in my early teens. Um, and so punk rock, when I in some ways I was looking for punk rock before I knew what it was, and I was looking for a punk spirit in music before it became accessible to me. And, um, and so, you know, a friend in high school gave me a mixtape and I was like, this is my thing. This is my thing. And I really went all in into it and very quickly at, um, you know, the record stores and stuff found, um, a lot of DIY publishing endeavors. And I loved reading about, um, you know, what other people sort of in community with me were thinking about music and thinking uh, about the sort of politics of music at the time, you know, because there was, back then there was much more so than there is now a schism between uh, underground and mainstream music, even though, um, you know, through the grunge boom and, you know, alt nation, uh, things were definitely going more mainstream. And, um, and the bands that really mattered to me early on were, were, uh, bands like Babes in Toyland and Fugazi bands that were really sort of ferocious and loud and had a vision, but particularly, um, seeing women in bands, um, and, and women with really, you know, loud voices. It was, it was, it was a huge catalyst for me to, um, get more deeply involved and, and just become a super, like a super fan of those bands. Um, and right around that time is, um, when some people that I worked with at at a record store, you know, at this point I'm like 15, were like, you know, you, have you heard about the international pop underground? Have you heard about Bratmobile? Have you heard about Bikini Kill? These were bands that were, you know, just starting at that point. And, um, and you know, that summer I found out about Riot Girl and started corresponding with a lot of people and, and really that, that helped, uh, shape and empower, um, my early endeavors with Hit It or Quit It Fancy and that it really gave me, um, a model of, um, of how I could be both a music fan and involved in music, but also still, um, really finding a space, for, like learning that there's basically a space for, and, and, a, and a tradition of radical feminism in punk rock that I didn't know about at all. And at that time it was very, you know, um, it was like insurgent. It was, it was happening right then. And, um, my early zine was, those were really kind of the, the primary forces. And I became, you know, pen pals with, with a lot of those folks who were involved in that early time. Um, at the time, you know, teenage girl fandom, and it still very much is, was not well regarded. It was not thought of as expertise it was not thought about as discerning and and a lot of my early writing seeks to prove that and um I guess still does <laughs> you Absolutely, know almost, yeah. you know 20, 20 I don't know how long ago that was 24 I, it's been a while 
It's been a while. It's almost 30 years because I got started at 15 and I'm going to be 45 this year. Wow. Okay. Just did the math. Longer than I thought. Um, and also part of that was very possible because at City Pages, which was the um, local alt-weekly that I grew up reading every week, um, there was a woman named Terry Sutton who was the music critic there. And at the time, she was really um, a standout uh, critic and feminist critic. Her work was unapologetically feminist, and everything was through a feminist lens, of course. And um, she she made me really see that it was possible to incorporate, um, you know, my politics and how I viewed the world and bring that into music. And it made me think, Oh, I can be a pop critic too. But the funny thing was, is like, you know, how analog the world was at that time, you know, we didn't really have the internet to the degree that we have now. And so I thought like every city had a, pop, you know, feminist pop critic working there. <laughs> I didn't realize that it was basically, you know, Terry Sutton, Gina Arnold and Ann Powers, you know, and, 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 um, and so between that and the then, um, publication of the book rock, she wrote that was edited by, um, uh, Ann Powers and Evelyn McDonald, you know, I was like, Oh, that came out when I was 15, 16. And I was like, Oh, I have a, I have a lineage. This is great. This is a thing people do. Um, right. I didn't realize it was so much of a anomaly, but so that, um, through publishing my fanzine, people started asking me and even paying me to write for, um, other publications and for city pages and for, um, uh, spin magazine when I was still in high school. And so, um, that's how I got started. And that was 1990, 1991 around there. Amazing. I love it. Um, your excellent book of music profiles, reviews, and historical essays is called the first collection of criticism by a living female rock critic. Based on your experience, why do you think that you are the only one? And are you still the only one with this new edition coming out? You know, that title, I want to, I want to be clear. It was sort of, um, it's not entirely accurate though. Both Greel Marcus and Robert Crisco was like, no, it really is accurate. Um, you know, there were, there obviously are books that are, um, collections of women's writing, within not the same, um, <laughs> you know, and, but a lot of them are either interviews or, or whatever. And I think, I think making this d distinction around criticism is really important, um, because it's, it's about opinion and we know that is a very fraught space. Um, particularly, you know, Feminist criticism is generally not welcome <laughs> in any industry. Um, and uh, for me, that, you know, that title was sort of a, a joke, but that what I had been telling people for years when I would talk to them about the idea of doing this book was that they would say, well, there's no precedent. And, you know, I touch on this, I mean, I touch on this, the entire afterward of the, of the new edition 
is a very long essay by me about that, about the idea of precedent and what happens when people tell you there's no precedent. Usually when women are told there's no precedent for what you're doing, it just means that the people that came before you have been erased, have been, their work has been buried, their work is languishing in obscurity. Because oftentimes, um, I mean, that's, a, the, that's the function of patriarchy is to keep, um, to keep marginalized folks from tapping into successful frameworks, from connecting with previous struggles, from building on previous work. And, you know, when I, when I would meet with editors or publishers or people would come around and say, oh, you know, I want to do a book with you. And I'd say, well, I want to collect my work. And they would say, oh, you know, that's like egotistical. That's, that's a fifth book. That's a fifth book. You really have to establish yourself first. And I was like, Jesus fucking Christ. I've been writing for at that point, you know, 22 years. Like what, (laughs) what is more established or, you know, I was like, what if it was just like, you know, just my critical essays and they're like, well, there's just no precedent. And I was like, Chuck Klosterman has best (laughs) sellers of this sort of work that isn't even as like no, no shade to Chuck or all shade to Chuck. I don't know. (laughs) Isn't as critically rigorous. Or, you know, what about Rob Sheffield? What about, you know, you could just name it off. Other people have had criticism collections, but because people would delineate, well, yours is you're a woman and you're younger and you're feminist. So it's different. And so they would say, well, it's more like blah, 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 this, this, you know, unrelated feminist pop culture book. Or they would say, you know, Ellen Willis's book. And and that was, that came out on an academic press and like, it didn't even do that well. And it was like, you know, I barely knew that Ellen Willis even existed as a pop critic for until, I mean, it was until I was in my thirties, you know? So don't tell me like, oh, that, you know, she's someone whose legacy was just as a, as a critic was just buried. And there were, there were other women who had books about pop music, certainly, but it was, they were just considered anomalies. And it was so important to me that other folks who were writing, you know, from either, you know, a feminist pop cultural lens or people who are coming from a marginalized perspective or um, you just even had like women who kind of just wanted to do a book. I wanted there to be something that was so irrefutable about my book that people could point to this and go, no, see, see, there is a precedent. You can't tell me there isn't a precedent. And, um, I didn't want anyone to have to fight for their fight for their right to be, um, you know, because, because so much of it was like people saying, well, like you don't exist or you don't count in the same world as people who are your ostensible peers. Yeah. Well, that's the question. Why won't readers trust women's opinions when it comes to rock? It, well, I mean, when it comes to most things, but we're talking about your career. So why won't readers trust women's opinions when it comes to rock music? Mm-hmm. I, and, and, and I think, you know, I think all of the sort of, um, 
knows and doubts that I heard all along the way, not just, you know, when it came to, you know, my early forays into publishing really, so much of that does draw out from that idea that uh, women in particular are forever um, interlopers or forever, you know, um, this insurgent force, particularly in rock music uh, or, or things that sort of come out of that world. And, you know, when I, when I was um, first researching for uh, No God But Herself, which is my book that's coming out in like three years at this point, um, about women in music in 1975, you know, the earliest women in rock, uh, trend pieces here, I'll, I'll let, let's do a little quiz. Uh, when do you think the first women in rock trend pieces came out in mainstream media? Oh God. All right. I'm just going to guess 1982. I was feeling early 80s, yeah, probably. 1968, Time Magazine. Huh, okay. So this puts women in rock in a state of basically perpetual arrival since 1968, right? So we're just, you know, forever here. We're forever arriving, you know, whether, and it's like, um, for me, I, I think some of the people sort of like, well, uh, you know, you're, you're, um, there's no, there's no precedent. Women are forever told there's no precedent for what they're doing. And right. so I think when I encountered that, I think that is really an extension of the idea that women don't have sort of like artistic primacy um, in, in music that they're, you know, uh, novelty forever. Yes. That they're interlopers, that they, that they don't have a, the same sense of ownership. It reminds and, me, and I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to, to no, 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 interrupt. No, no. I just, it, it just totally reminded me of, um, those, there was more than one that I remember like covers of hit it or quit it that were like, like the year of men in rock. And then there would be like men on the cover and it just like cracked my shit up so hard. And like, like, I feel like that's exactly what we're talking about. Yeah. So we, we, that was the last issue of hit it or quit. It was a dual cover. Uh, It was a Miranda July on one. And then on the other one, it was a a 2000 and what is it? 2004, like the year of men in rock. And it was like, um, (laughs) they're, they're finally here and they've got something to say. And we really, and they're reliable. Yes. yes, They're here and they're surprising, surprisingly reliable. Um, and it was just really, some of them were really, that was something I just started doing was asking (laughs) men and bands like the same fucking idiotic questions that everybody else already got like, what's it like being a man in a band? And people be like, look at you like, what? Like, (laughs) I've never even had to think about it, you know? And, and, but sometimes, uh, you know, we would get some good answers, some serious answers. Do you carry your own gear on the bus? Yeah. So it's just really, um, I think, so, so to get back to your, to your question is, you know, that, that was the sort of, it was both the joke title and the real title. And 
fortunately now as um, one of the editors of the American Music Series at UT Press, which I've been doing for the last couple of years, um, fortunately I've been able to edit and bring forth um, uh, quite a few different books from different perspectives that um, that are books of music criticism. Um, and right now I'm working on uh, an anthology uh, book of music criticism by one of my feminist writing heroes, and I can't tell you what it is yet because we haven't announced it, but um, someone who hugely formative and it's like an absolute goddamn shame that she doesn't have, you know, a phone book sized anthology, but you know what, pretty soon we're gonna, um, but you know, some of the books that, uh, that I've brought here is, you know, Hannah Ewan's Fangirls, um, Sasha Geffen's book, uh, Glitter Up the Dark, which is about, uh, uh, queer trans non-binary voices within uh, pop music and how that's shaped pop music as a whole. Um, you know, we have uh, Hanif Abdurraqib's book about Tribe Called Quest that, you know, really comes from uh, his personal perspective. And, and just, um, I'm really grateful to be in a position to just be helping bring uh, more books and a wider variety of voices into um, music criticism in a way. And I think books for me in the last couple of years have been really um, important because there's fewer places within um, journalism online and off where people can really go long with big ideas. It is not, you know, uh, we could, we could get into this at length, but you know, the last couple of years, I have not, you know, the Trump era in particular was like, and and even in these sort of um, uh, Stan era of of, uh, social media sometimes makes it really complicated for people to have um, big ideas within criticism because somebody's Somebody's going to dox you, you know, there's, yeah, there's, yeah. there's real risk to it. So anyways, I think books are like a, uh, felt like a really fertile place to go with that. And, um, and in part because I've published my own book of criticism and seen how people responded to it. And, and, you know, with the first edition of this book, it did like bananas well. Um, and, 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 um, and, the people that I met and the readers that I encountered and the readership that um, I connected with on the publication of this book really substantiated um, and created the editorial framework for the second edition that's coming out. Piece of yours that stands out to me most, I think, in terms of it just dropping like a fucking bomb and like reverberating in a truly culture changing way is your 2013 Village Voice piece, The Stomach Churning Sexual Assault Accusations Against R. Kelly, A Conversation with Jim Dirigatis. I, I remember before you published that piece, R. Kelly's predatory patterns with underage girls. Everybody knew about it. They were just treated like a a joke. Ten years before your piece came out, Dave Chappelle was writing song parodies about R. Kelly pissing on teen girls. It just seemed like nobody gave a crap. 
and I was enjoying Trapped in the Closet. Um, there was a lot so of... So was Will Oldham, who appears in it. <laughs> so a lot of people. We were listening to R. Kelly at the bus office while making Bust Magazine. Then your interview with music critic Jim Dirigatis hit the internet. And I was just like, wait, wait, hold up. What, what, what? Like, it was like I saw something that I knew in an entirely different way in... Your introduction to that piece, you wrote, in this interview, Diragata speaks frankly and explicitly about the many disturbing charges against R. Kelly and says, ultimately, the saddest fact I've learned is nobody matters less in our society than young black women. Nobody. And it was just such a scathing indictment of every last one of us who have just been turning a blind eye to this situation and to so many others like it for 15 fucking years because we just wanted to jam out to sexy, weird music. But there was this collective awakening as a result of that interview that you did that one could easily see now as a precursor to the watershed moment with Harvey Weinstein four years later. And the outrage around it really put pressure on to finally bring R. Kelly to justice instead of all that nonsense. It what why did you decide to pursue that story at that time? And I'm so curious, what is your sense of the impact that it's had eight years later. God, eight years ago. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it, you're right. It really does feel like a lifetime in terms of uh, pop culture and cultural dialogue around sexual assault. Um, so around uh, the time, let me talk about this in the piece. You know, Jim and I always had a kind of... Uh, uh, sometimes adversarial back and forth. And um, Jim and I got into some, we had some tweets and then it went to DMs and then it went to long emails and then it went to phone calls about R. Kelly. Cause he was like, I was just making, you know, I was kind of making some jokes maybe around like the time he was headlining Pitchfork, but also I was being like, but being a little blase, being like, he's a creep. Everybody knows he's a creep. This is like a weird, you know, whatever. And R. Kelly was headlining Pitchfork because he was Ryan Schreiber's favorite artist. And he was completely, you know, um, at the time Pitchfork, you know, absolutely just always covering him obsessed. Da, 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 da. And Jim was like, this is fucked. And a lot of people were like, oh, God, he just never lets up. And so Jim and I get into it. And he's like, basically starts going, this needs to be your story. Like, I want to pass the mantle to you because I'm fucking, like, I'm, you know, I'm so tired of this because nobody, like, nobody cares. I'm not saying I'm so tired of this story, but he's like, you have no idea what it's like to have Aaliyah's mom cry on your shoulder. You have no idea what it's like to go interview um, girls who are shattered because of their interactions with this. And he's like, I will give you every single one of my files. Just like take this because people will listen to you and they will not listen to me and they will not listen to me anymore. And people need to understand the gravity of this. And he started telling me things. I mean, things have never been able to be printed, frankly, because of, you know, uh, because of, of the kind of reporting that you can and can't do legally around this. And also, you know, as him and I have both come to learn in P 
painful detail how skittish people are and how skittish publications are, particularly in a uh, post-Gawker, post-Peter Thiel world mm-hmm. and um, or landscape, I should say. And so he told me things that just just devastated me, just haunted my brain. And I was like, maybe we can get someone to just, you know, he's got a new record coming. I kind of pitched it around and like, no, I mean, I had people not even reply to my pitch, which is really telling you something, you know, generally I could land on my same piece I pitched at the time, but my editor at the village voice was like, sure. Yes, let's do it. There's a hook. So we did that in September and then, um, and I just kind of sat until it was time for the record to come out. And I thought people might, I thought people might care. And because I'd done some decent amount of reporting and just been around enough to know people generally don't care about rape and sexual assault, especially in the music industry. Because when you start talking about people as people, and as I I have said, you know, there's a, I mean, you're just looking at tearing down the music industry and history. And it just, it's, 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 uh, because it just doesn't hold up. This is a space where a lot of uh, young, eager people have been abused in every possible way. Um, it is a function of the music industry. And so, you know, when I was doing the interview with Jim, I just really had a feeling that maybe this might make some people care. I had no idea. I hadn't, I really had no idea what would happen in the wake of it, which was within 24 hours, it was the biggest piece in the history of the village voice, full stop. It had been syndicated around the world. It had been picked up and, you know, looking at the stats for it, it was doubling readership every hour for the first 72 hours. It was insane. It was the first time, uh, the next day was the first time in close to a decade that uh, R. Kelly had been uh, called to account. He was doing an interview on an Atlanta radio station and they asked him about it in the interview. Mm -hmm. And that was huge. And then that became news. Yeah. And it was just... I mean, I kind of went into hibernation for a couple of days because I couldn't even, I couldn't even believe it. And also it was just, you know, I opened up like Facebook or whatever uh, the next day and my messages were from women who had had experiences with him or had friends who had had experiences with him as teenagers Um there were just so many and, and just a lot of a lot of folks. I think it was kind of the beginning of a big overdue wave of, as we now call reckoning. A lot of women in particular, women I knew, total strangers writing to me with their long accounts of sexual assault. And then also people coming forward to me saying, will you report on this? Will you report on this? A lot of people wanting me to do interviews in press worldwide. And I was like in tears. Like I couldn't, I was just so 
heavy and devastating. And then, you know, I think lots of times when we look at the sort of timeline for the beginning of Me Too, um, Dylan Farrow's um, op-ed dropped not even like 10 or 12 days later. And so then all of a sudden you kind of add these things up of people going, you know, why haven't we held R. Kelly to, you know, uh, up as a sexual predator to, um, to all the things sort of uh, happening around Woody Allen and, and Dylan Farrow's, um, you know, account of her own survival of his predation and others. And then there just started to be like people going like this kind of uptick of going, well, what about, what about, what about, and, and then, you know, just sort of things picking up as far as me too. And, um, and so that did I, did I think, I didn't think that piece would have the impact that it did or lay the groundwork that it did. And it's just an interview. It's not like I wrote a manifesto. It's not my words. It's, it's Jim's, but it's, I think it lays, lays the groundwork for conversations. And I didn't think it would have the impact it did because um, people didn't give a shit about uh, what women, in particular young women, uh, young folks, had to survive to participate in music. Full stop. Yeah. It just, you know, it's it's such a clear example to me of how pop culture journalism, like paying attention to pop culture can really change the world. And it was very difficult to read, but it was also so inspiring in terms of Thank you. the work that I do and just just being a woman in the world and being alive. I'm so grateful that you did it. I can't believe that this hour is almost up. It flew by. Yeah, I have so, so many bad. questions for you, but um, I have to ask you this one last question because it's a question that we ask all of our guests on pop tarts. And that question is what you watching. It's a broad pop cultural question. We are ta- asking you about books, movies, television, music, music videos, podcasts, anything that you are consuming pop culturally. We know that it's going to be cool because it's you. Jessica Hopper, what you watching? Well, last night as I, uh, as I cleaned my office, I was watching Before Sunrise because we are on the, uh, what is it, the June 18th is like the anniversary, the day that uh, Before Sunrise and all the movies in that trilogy uh, take place. Um, and so I rewatched that uh, while I cleaned my office. I'm um, reading uh, Lisa Tadeo's Animal, which I'm halfway through and I had to put it down just to metabolize like the glorious intensity of that. I don't read a lot of fiction, but good God, that really knocked my socks off. Um, I'm finishing The Magical Language of Others. Uh, what I'm listening to, I've just been listening to Johnny Mitchell's Blue like nonstop because um, it's a 50th anniversary and I just had to do... Today we're recording it, it's yes. the 50th anniversary. So, so I just have been, um, I did, uh, because my next next book is about, is a lot about Johnny Mitchell. I've, I, I'm, you know, kind of people's resident expert on Johnny Mitchell, uh, thank God. Um, <laughs> for me, uh, for them, I don't know, but um, so... I just 
I, I just did like multiple pieces about it, multiple podcasts about it. And so I just had to get deeply intimate with blue again. So that was back on it. And then, you know, right now, uh, my favorite podcast, uh, my favorite podcasts are, um, uh, Danielle Henderson's podcast. Uh, I saw what you did and, uh, with Millie DeCherico that's about film and it's funny and so goddamn feminist. And I just love to hear, women of a certain age talk about their thoughts and feelings about film. And then my other favorite is, um, called band Splain, That's hosted by Yossi Salek. And, uh, she, she gets, uh, critics on to explain bands and fandoms, sometimes ones that are not particularly revered, but this week's episode is nearly four hours long. And it's with, um, Brittany Spanos about the entire, career of the red hot chili peppers which is like four hours about the red hot chili peppers yes not a band i care about but you know do i want two women who basically bring like almost like a boy band lens feminist lens to the red hot chili peppers yes 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 Yes. i want to hear feminist takes on danny california so those are those are all i wonder if they talk um, about wasn't there um there's some old interview footage where Flea was like super creepy to the interviewer girl and was like, I don't know about that. That would also surprise me if it was Flea and not Anthony Kiedis. Maybe it was Anthony Kiedis. I can't really remember. I saw it so long ago. And then ever since then, I was like, oh, well, fuck the red hot chili peppers too. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of, they cover a lot of ground. They cover a lot of ground. So I, I highly encourage, um, I, 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 um, co-sign and encourage people to dive into, all of those works. I find them greatly gratifying in particular, those podcasts. Amazing. I am so happy and excited to have finally had this opportunity to reconnect with you after our momentous meeting loads so many years ago in the desert. You, your work is important and great and it makes the world a better place. And I appreciate you so much. Thank you so much for having me. And it's just great to be on your podcast and um, be in dialogue with people who uh, understand the fundamental value of what I do. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. And I appreciate all the work that you do. So uh, thank you. Thank Thank you. you. We are going to take the very briefest of breaks and then I'm going to reconvene with Callie. I'm going to ask Callie, Callie, you're going to ask me what you're watching. watching. What the, what the fuck are you watching? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again, guys. Before we get back to the show, I want to tell you about our new sponsor, Wolfie Vibes Publicity. If you're working on a new project and find yourself in need of a kick-ass publicist who communicates well and works tirelessly to get you the coverage you're after, consider going to Wolfie Vibes Publicity. Wolfie Vibes Publicity is a female-owned and operated boutique PR firm that will get you where you need to be, and you'll even have fun in the process. Get in touch via wolfievibespublicity.com for details and quotes, and tell them that Pop-Tart sent you. Essentially, I started it because every female comedian I know was amazing and hardworking and hilarious, and I knew would make great podcasts, and every male comedian I know already had a podcast and was doing their own thing. Hi, I'm Kate Moldenhauer, the founder of More Banana Podcasts, a comedy podcast network entirely produced, hosted, and led by women. 
We have shows about politics. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Let's Get Civical. When the Supreme Court puts stuff on their calendar, they use the word docket. So their Google Calendar is a docket. Is a docket. So technically, I have a docket. You have a docket. We all have We all have a docket. Sex? Welcome to my vagina. I'm Jesse Karen. This is Rebecca Frank. What were ancient Greek dildos made of, Jesse? They were made of padded leather and, yep, anointed with olive oil. Yep. <laughs> scams? I'm Caitlin I'm Bradley Smith. <laughs> and, and we, we love, love scams. scams. She tells them she's a German Russian heiress and she seems like she has a lot of money and people buy it. That's yeah. basically what's happening. So as soon as she got a loan, she would cash it as much as she could out before anybody caught on. Amazing. So smart. I mean, so smart. I mean, it's terrible, but like to take that money out immediately. Because women are actually pretty versatile and funny. More Banana is a network of women's voices, unfiltered and uninterrupted. Find us everywhere you get your podcasts and learn about our growing roster of shows at morebanana.com. Hey, Pop-Tart listeners, have you been trying to record your own podcast, but you keep getting bogged down by technical problems? Luscious Logan can take the raw recordings of your show, edit and produce them to give them that rich, full body sound that you hear right now. If you have a deep need to express yourself and sound good in the process, reach Luscious Logan LusciousLogan13 at gmail.com. That's LusciousLogan13 at gmail.com. If you want to have that luscious sound. And we're back. Hello. Callie, we just talked to Jessica Hopper, and she knows everything about rock music. Everything. Encyclopedia. She knows it all. Rocklopedia. Jessica Hopper explains it all to you. And now, <laughs> Callie, I've got to know, I want to know, I need to know what you're watching. What have I been watching? Well, I got to watch two episodes because they were free on AMC streaming of Kevin Can uh, Fuck Himself. Mm-hmm. Which is and the- can he, in fact, fuck himself? He can fuck right off. It's um, Annie Murphy from Shit's Creek. Uh-huh. I just fucking adore her. And um, it's so it's like when she's with her husband in the house, it's like a sitcom. It's super bright. There's canned laughter. It's like single camera. And then when she leaves him and goes to another room or something or when she's alone, it's much darker. There's no laughing track. So they're like playing on like the – she's supposed to be like the perfect – sitcom mom, wife, you know, doing all the things for this like arrogant dude who doesn't appreciate it. And then then when she's off, she's like, I'm gonna fucking kill him. And so basically she's always just thinking about killing him. I needed that right now. It's good. Right. I wish I could watch more of it. I may just have to get AMC. And then I watch it's it's, she's just such a gem, you know? Yeah, I love her. Her little like mannerisms, she's just tells a lot with the face. Um, then I watched that Fear Street movie series on Netflix, which is uh, mm-hmm. based on R.L. Stein series that I'm sure you have read as a kid. I read as a kid. I'm too old for that, but oh. I'm sure you read it as a kid. Oh, I most definitely read it as a kid. Um, and the Christopher Pike ones. The Christopher Pike ones were though all always so moody on a mountain by the sea. 
<laughs> and Arlstein was more like teens, you know. But um, I'm not sure who the target audience is for this. I guess people like me that watched Arlstein or read Arlstein when we were young, because the storyline is super um, like teen movie storyline. It's not like there's nothing really crazy going on there. It's like a little cheesy. It starts out in 1994 and they're in high school. But then the blood and the gore is 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 up there, man. So it's oh. definitely not for the for kids, I don't think. So it's super gory YA. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. But I do like that the like the um main storyline is uh a queer couple. And that is I like that when it's just like not a big deal. It's just there and they are. Um and so then so it's like first it's in the nineties and then there's like there's a there's like a curse on this town and then every couple years there's like a huge mass murdering and um so then the second one goes to 1978 and then the last one is in 1666 and so it's basically doing origin story of the curse but then you know scary the 1994 one I, I liked the most because i like you know like teen 90s mall murders that's great 1666 was cool because it was, they were queer, and so she gets hung as a witch because of that, essentially. Spoiler. Did I blow it? No, maybe. <laughs> maybe take it out. <laughs> but they do, they do address, um, which, like, blaming queer, telling someone that just because you were queer means you were a witch. You know, they called everything a witch back in the day. Yeah. So I liked it, um, but I'm not really sure who it's for. <laughs> And then um, I saw this awesome documentary called Summer of Soul on Hulu. I loved that documentary. Loved it. Questlove um, put, the, put the doc out, and it's a black music festival in Harlem in 1969 that went on for six consecutive free concerts. And it basically the footage got, just got hidden away because it was at the same summer as Woodstock. So... Nobody was buying this footage up. And um, it's got like Stevie Wonder. The Nina Simone performance was... That Nina Simone performance and also seeing Mahalia Jackson. Like, yeah. I was too excited. Mahalia Jackson and then Gladys Knight. Like, oh, and the outfits. The fucking outfits. The Fifth Dimension was tearing oh. it up with their special outfits. Oh, my God. It was... That was just... Such a good doc. Definitely highly recommend that one. And um, and immediately I went to go jam on the on my keyboard. I was like, I'm inspired. Um, and then I was watching um, White Lotus. I've only watched the one and a half episodes, but so far I really like it. You are going to love it. I'm already going to tell you this because it has one of your favorite people in it. Connie, Who's in it? Uh, Connie Britton. Is that her name? Connie I Britton. love Connie Britton. Yes. Yeah, and Jennifer Coolidge. I also love Jennifer Coolidge. Yeah, the, the cast is great. It's on HBO, and it's like uh, a ensemble comedy following um, these different people on a Hawaiian vacation resort, and it, it's pretty funny. Like um, Jennifer Coolidge plays a woman that's there to scatter her mom's a- ashes, and you know how her characters all the time are just re- over the top ridiculous. She's really into massages and uh, Connie Britton's husband thinks he has ball cancer in the first episode. And it's just like, 
pulls his dick out and he's like, look how big my balls are. Oh. And then there's like, uh, Connie Britton is there with her family and there's like, the, our daughter gets to bring a friend and they're just like, they're just the best, like obnoxious. I don't want to hang anybody teens, you know, and they're like secretly doing all the drugs and won't let the brother hang out, stuff like that. And then there's also a couple there that, um, like the guy is super obnoxious and super rich and really wants this like specific room with like a swim up pool or some shit. And he's ruining the whole vacation just talking about it. It's, it's, and I want to see where it's going because it's all going to have to combine into some kind of explosion and I can't wait. And then the last thing I've been watching, which I've also just started, I've seen the first two episodes, is the Gossip Girl reboot. XOXO, Callie. XOXO. They already tell you who Gossip Girl is is in the first fucking episode. So that was weird. Baby, I know you told me who it was, and I was excited. Tell tell our people since they tell them right away. Baby Old Lady is in it. Um, Baby Old Lady is my nickname for... uh, What's her name? The the Tavi. Tavi. Tavi Gavinson. Yes, because she when she was so young, but she dressed like a little grandmother. Uh-huh. I yeah. love that look. Um, but she's in it. She's a really good actress. She has a very specific, like sounding voice. Mm-hmm. Um it's it's good. You know, it's I it had terrible fucking reviews. So I went in thinking it was going to be terrible, and it was not that bad. It was kind of, you know, it's what you expect from watching a Gossip Girl reboot? Your other show, Kevin Can Fuck Himself, also had terrible reviews, so I haven't seen it yet. Weird. I liked it. I mean, I just really like her. <laughs> yeah, she's cool. And what have you been watching? I'm so glad you asked. Well, I finally caught up to uh, the HBO show that everyone was watching back in April, Mayor of Easttown. Oh, so good. Yeah, I finally binge-watched the whole thing, so I'm all caught up. There was a scene towards the end where Luscious Logan and I both went, (gasps) and I'm sure if you saw it, you know what scene that was, but we, like, clutched ourselves. We were beside ourselves. We couldn't believe it. Um, (laughs) There was two scenes like that, actually, um, which is good. And I liked seeing Elder Guy Pierce. You know, I remember, like, being real horny for him in Memento back in the day, so I was happy to see Guy Pierce again. I was, I knew he looked familiar, but I didn't know, couldn't place it. And it was so funny how, how like, I feel like they went out of their way to make the characters say things like hoagies to, yeah. to, <laughs> to make it so specific that they were outside of Philly. I was like, I get it. You eat hoagies. Like, shut, like trying to make Kate Winslet say hoagie is like, come on. But That's why that it was SNL awesome. skit was so funny. Yeah, yeah. Did you see I that saw skit this before you I saw the, the skit show. before I saw Mayor of Easttown, and then I was like, oh, I see exactly what they're saying about that. <laughs> yeah. um, and then, of course, I, I watched the whole Netflix series, Cat People. What is this? And it's so good. It's like a little mini documentary series about surprising people who just are crazy about cats and their whole lives revolve around cats. And the first episode is all about a very adorable gentleman who I've been following on social media for years named Mosho, the cat rapper. Oh, um, I, love I feel him. like, yeah, you would totally recognize him. His wife knits or crochets these adorable little matching outfits for him and their cats. And 
he raps about them and he has high quality cat content where he's dressed up in knitwear with his little cats. He has one cat with a skin condition. So sometimes he's in the bath with the cat because the cat Always needs cat in the baths. bath with the bath. He's so cute. Oh, so cute. And then um, there was also an episode with this cat circus called the Amazing Acro Cats. Oh, I've and, heard of you know, that. Obviously, like anything with performing animals, you give it sort of like, are they being treated well? But yes, they're being treated well. They were giving, like she was just uh, using the whole clicker and treats method and was was teaching these cats to do adorable things like play in a cat band and like jump on a, like walk around on a rolling ball and like jump from one thing to another. It was very cute. I definitely want to see the amazing acro cats in real life, if at all possible. I love it. It's a great series. I recommend it. And then um, the movie that Kristen Wiig and Annie Mumolo were trying to release, like right when COVID happened, and then like it was the release date bounced all over the place. Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar. It. Oh yeah, I saw um, that. Yeah, Kristen Wiig and Annie Mumolo wrote Bridesmaids, and then they both start. They both wrote this movie, Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar and they've starred in it together. And um, I loved it. I finally saw it because it's on Hulu. It really reminded me of Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Just like it's very um, silly and with big budget, like splashy visuals. And um, Jamie Dornan from Fifty Shades of Grey is in there as the romantic lead. And it's He's so goofy and silly. And all of the jokes are about middle-aged ladies, and they made me laugh so much. There was, like, so many jokes about Chicos and culottes and stuff. Oh, so yeah, funny. there was a lot of culottes jokes. <laughs> and I loved watching, like, Jamie Dornan from Fifty Shades of Grey get, like, sexually obsessed with, like, middle-aged ladies. It was so funny. I loved it. I really recommend it. It's on Hulu. And the last thing that I've been watching is the Majestic Pop-Tarts Patreon page, which has made its debut in the world and is great. We need your help to keep us alive, and hopefully you'll be excited by the goodies that Callie and I have hooked up for our Pop-Tarts listeners over at patreon.com slash Podcast. Obviously, you can get this show for free, uh, week after week, but if you want to give us a few shekels, we will reward you with all kinds of incentives, like we have been typing up show notes for all of our episodes, so you can just click on in there and see what every single amazing guest has been watching for all of our 110-ish episodes. And um, you can also get ad-free episodes, and you could also get Zoom chats with Callie and I, and you can also get prize packages. There's so much, depending on how um, much you want to sponsor us for. So if you wouldn't mind going over to patreon.com slash Podcast, you can find out more there. I would like to thank... First and foremost, my cat Irving, who is putting his little fuzzy face up against the microphone. So Say hi to the people, Irv. No. <laughs> that little thump was Irv. Um, I would also like to thank our luscious producer and sound engineer, Logan Del Fuego. <sighs> Muy caliente, Logan. And our girl gang at Bust Magazine. You can find me on Twitter at Emily Rems and on Instagram at Rems Emily, but you cannot find Callie on the socials, so don't even try, right? No, 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 no. 
but you can email us both. I'm at emilyrems at bus.com. Callie W at bus.com. And you can learn more about this show at bust.com slash Pop-Tarts. And finally, please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us get the word out, and we super duper appreciate it. Until next time. All right. All right. Now I'm going to press stop.